Hello everyone! Uh, welcome to our first ever Halloween short story collection thing. First of all, thank you to everyone who participated this year. This was super short notice, but we have a ton of submissions from the cast, from friends on our Discord server, and a couple very cool guest stars who we will get to hear from tonight. Uh, I, of course, am B, and I will be hosting this event. Um, though I feel like I'm not really prepared for it. I'm in my usual clothes, so, uh, give me a second. I'm gonna do a quick web bump. Hold on. Okay, <laughs> then. Now I'm in the scary story mood, as it were, and we can begin. But I guess before we start, it's always good to do a bit of an intro, a bit of a foreword. And I know just where to find one. Strange and Scary Things by Alvin Schwartz a foreword for scary stories to tell in the dark. Pioneers used to entertain themselves by telling scary stories. At night, they might gather in somebody's cabin or around a fire and see who could scare the others the most. Some girls and boys in my town do the same thing today. They get together at somebody's house, and they turn out the lights and eat popcorn and scare one another half to death. Telling scary stories is something people have done for thousands of years, and for most of us, we enjoy being scared in that way. Since there isn't any real danger, we think it's all fun. There are a great many scary stories to tell. Ghost stories, witches, vampires, zombies, you name it. There are tales of monstrous creatures and other dangers. There are even stories that make us laugh at all the scariness. Some of these tales are very old, and they're told around the world. Most have the same origins. They're based on things that people saw, heard, or experienced, or at least that they thought they did. Many years ago, a young prince became famous for a scary story he wanted to tell, but did not finish. His name was Mamilius, and he was probably nine or ten years old. William Shakespeare wrote about him in The Winter's Tale. It was on a dark winter's day that his mother, the Queen, asked him for a story. A sad tale's best for the winter, he said. I have one of sprites and goblins. Do your best to frighten me with your sprites, she said. You're powerful at it. I shall tell it softly, he said. The crickets shall not hear it. Then he began. There was a man dwelt by a churchyard. But that was as far as he got, for at that moment the king came in, arrested the queen, and took her away. And soon after that I... Mamillus died. No one knows how he would have finished his story. If you started as he did, how would you have told it? Most scary stories are, of course, meant to be told. They're more scary that way. How you tell them is important. As Mamilius knew, the best way is to speak softly so that your listeners lean forward to catch your sound, and speak slowly so your voice sounds scary. And the best time to tell these is at night, in the dark and the gloom. It is easy for someone to imagine all sorts of strange and scary things. The Red Eye, an adaptation of White with Red. 
A man went to a hotel and walked up to the front desk to check in. The woman at the desk gave him his key and told him that on the way to his room, there was a door with no number that was locked and no one was allowed in there. She explained that it was a storeroom and that it was out of bounds. She reminded him of this several times before allowing him upstairs. So he followed the instructions of the woman at the front desk, going straight to his room and going to bed. Around midnight, though, the man was woken up by the sound of opera music playing down the hall. It was close, so he got up and explored the halls in search of the music source. He found himself in front of the door with no number. Sure enough, it was locked. He bent down and looked through the wide keyhole. Cold air passed through it, chilling his eye. What he saw was a hotel bedroom like his, and in the corner was a woman whose skin was incredibly pale. She was leaning her head against the wall, facing away from the door. He stared in confusion for a while. Was this a celebrity? The owner's daughter? He almost knocked on the door, out of curiosity, but decided not to. The woman then began to dance to the loud opera music. The man watched as she moved gracefully across the room, the dance entrancing him. Her skin looked smooth, like that of a porcelain doll, and her long black hair was slick. With every step that she took, the man felt as if he were falling in love. But the more he watched, the more that feeling started to change. There was an uneasiness in how she moved rough and painful. It was almost a cry for help. Before he knew it, half an hour had gone by. He was getting tired and was ready to head back to his room, his curiosity nearly satisfied. As he was still looking, though, the woman suddenly stopped dancing. She turned sharply, and he jumped back from the door, hoping she would not suspect that he had been spying on her. He crept away from the door and walked back to his room. The next day, he returned to the door and looked through the wide keyhole. This time, all he saw was redness. He couldn't make anything out besides a distinct red color, unmoving. Perhaps the inhabitants of the room knew he was spying the night before, and had blocked the keyhole with something red. He felt embarrassed that he had made the woman so uncomfortable and hoped she had not made a complaint to the woman at the front desk. At this point, he decided to consult her for more information. She sighed and said, Did you look through the keyhole? The man told her that he had, and she said, Well, I might as well tell you the story of what happened in that room. A long, long time ago, a man murdered his wife in there. And we find that even now, whoever stays in there gets very uncomfortable. But these people weren't ordinary. They were white all over, except for their eyes, which were red. Dead Man's Hate by Robert E. Howard. They hang John Farrell in the dawn amid the marketplace, 
At dusk came Adam Brand to him and spat upon his face. O neighbors all, spake Adam Brand, see ye John Farrell's fate. Tis proven here a hempen noose is stronger than man's hate. For heard ye not John Farrell's vow to be avenged upon me? Come life or death, see how he hangs high on the gallows tree. Yet never a word the people spoke in fear and wild surprise. For the grisly corpse raised up its head and stared with sightless eyes. And with strange motions slow and stiff, pointed at Adam Brand, and clambered down the gibbet tree, the noose within its hand. With gaping mouth stood Adam Brand like a statue carved of stone, till the dead man laid a clammy hand hard on his shoulder bone. Then Adam shrieked like a soul in hell, the red blood left his face, and he reeled away in a drunken run through the screaming marketplace. And close behind the dead man came with a face like a mummy's mask, and the dead joints cracked and the stiff legs creaked with their unwanted task. Men fled before the flying twain or shrank with bated breath, and they saw upon the face of Adam Brand the seal set there by death. He reeled on bucking legs that failed, yet on and on he fled. So through the shuddering marketplace, the dying fled the dead. At the riverside fell Adam Brand with a scream that rent the skies. Across him fell John Farrell's corpse, nor even the twain did rise. There was no wound on Adam Brand, but his brow was cold and damp, for the fear of death had blown out his life as a witch blows out a lamp. His lips were writhed in a hard grin like a fiend on Satan's coals, and the men that looked on this face that day, his stare still haunts their souls. Such was the fate of Adam Brand, a strange unearthly fate, for a stronger than death or hempen noose are the fires of a dead man's hate. I am Wisedred Power 700, and I'm going to show you a story uh, about the Kelpie. This story is written by Lando, and I hope you enjoy, because this is kind of personal to me. This is about the Scottish culture. I come from Scotland, and this is a really fun tale. Almost every Scottish lock has a monster, or at least stories about a monster. Perhaps they were just convenient tales told by grannies to stop local children playing too near the water. The most common monster in these watery warnings is the Kelpie, the water horse. The Kelpie was a creature that lived deep under the water. When it clambered above the lock shore, it changed shape to become a beautiful horse, already startled and bright luring local boys and girls, young men and women, or even unwary travellers to step in the syrup and sit on the saddle. But the minute anyone sat on the saddle, they were held fast, stuck to the horse's back. Then the beautiful horse would gallop straight into the bank, the water, and keep going, keep galloping until the rider's feet were under knees and chest. And then screaming mouth, the Kel Kelpie would dive under the water and drown the rider in the depths of the cold, dark lagoon. This story was told that all children living near a lock were told to beware of horses they don't know and beware of the edge of the lock. But only those with very wise grannies heard the full story, heard the Kelpies contain more than just one shape. 
So I hope you enjoyed my little short story and I thank you a lot for listening and actual and taking the time to listen to me and my culture. Well, I'm just rambling on at this point, so have fun with other stories. The Magician's Trick by Vincent Venacava. Um, sorry for any mispronunciation that might have just occurred, and I'm sorry I don't often read poetry, so hopefully it still sounds alright. Um, without further ado, the house was packed with a crowd of buzz, for the magician's biggest show for tonight was a trick he had promised was sure to make minds blow. He toured the gallery a bit, a sly look on his face, then introduced his beautiful wife and assistant the lovely Grace. Now gaze your eyes upon this box extraordinary in no way, but with this trunk and my gorgeous wife we will make magic here today. He gestured the woman into the box, then went around the back, and to the shock of everyone pulled out a saw from his sack. For this amazing trick I have prepared for you, I will run my saw on through this box my beautiful graces in and cut them both in two. The room was filled with gasps and groans as he sliced and carved down the trunk. He sawed the box till his blade reached the bottom, stopping the plunk. The faces in the crowd went white. He had the audience amazed. He pushed the box apart in two. The room's tension had been raised. And now I complete my trick and open up this box. Now please be warned, the magician said. This will knock off your socks. The sly magician then hitched the latch and opened up the door, and suddenly both halves of grace slid out onto the floor. There you have it, the magician said, an escape of tour de force. The name of this trick, if you wanted to know, I call it the divorce. We changed up the last line a little bit, uh, because I was worried about gore. So if you'd like to read the original poem, I totally recommend it. Uh, thanks for listening. <clears throat> this is a D&D story from a campaign that I run. It takes place in a rundown town that is all but abandoned, and in what is called a morgue <sighs> As you enter, when you look to your left, it seems like a freezer area with little square drawers that look like they can be pulled out. Roll investigation, if above 17. You, with your somehow large knowledge of this kind of area, know that this side is a morgue. If below 17, it just looks like a freezer. Maybe you could find something you want to keep inside. When you look to the right, you see what used to be a normal orphanage. There seems to be a shelf knocked over with bones underneath underneath it. Roll either a nature or a medicine check. Um, DC 17, if above, you can tell, you can tell it's a fey humanoid. Maybe something like a hag raven. If below 17, you can't tell exactly what it is, other than it's a humanoid skeleton. But you can see some older beds that seem to be covered by a, by very thick layers of dust, as if they weren't used for years. Some were, some are rotted and broken. You also notice a rotted wooden crib towards the back of the room, also covered in a thick layer of dust. Roll a perception check, DC 14. If above, you notice... You notice a little girl in the corner, crying. You didn't notice her there at the beginning when you walked in, or while 
you were looking around before when you were looking around before make an arcana check dc 18 perception if perception if below you feel like there's more than just you in this room but you can't see anyone or see anyone or thing other than the pile of bones on the floor if above arcana you can tell that this is some sort of not illusion but image of this girl she's there but she isn't this seems to be some kind of magic you have no idea what kind of what kind as this is somewhat of a rare thing to see if below you can tell that there's some kind of magic going on but in this room going on in this room but you don't know what it's about or what may be causing this arcane feeling. The girl says, You're not supposed to be here. No one is supposed to be here. Unless you're a newcomer, that would explain why she hasn't gotten you. Yes, quickly, you must make your way to the capital. That's where everyone in the areas that that aren't able to be inhabited by people are and have escaped you and escaped her are. You must hurry before she finds you. Before she finds you here and takes you. That is the end. Hello everyone, I'm Christina McLean. I play Winterra on Agents of Damned, and I'll be reading The Goblin Pony from The Grey Fairy Book by Andrew Lang. Don't stir from the fireplace tonight, said old Peggy, for the wind is blowing so violently that the house shakes. Besides, this is Halloween when the witches are abroad, and the goblins who are their servants are wandering about in all sorts of disguises doing harm to the children of men. Why should I stay here, said the oldest of the young people. No, I must go and see what the daughter of old Jacob, the rope maker, is doing. She wouldn't close her blue eyes all night if I didn't visit her father before the moon had gone down. I must go and catch lobsters and crabs, said the second, and not all the witches and goblins in the world shall hinder me. So, they all determined to go on their business or pleasure, and scorned the wise advice of old Peggy. Only the youngest child hesitated a minute when she said to him, you stay here, my little Richard, and I will tell you beautiful stories. But he wanted to pick a bunch of wild thyme and some blackberries by moonlight, and ran out after the others. When they got outside the house, they said, The old woman talks of wind and storm, but never was the weather finer or the sky more clear. See how majestically the moon stalks through the transparent clouds? Then, all of a sudden, they noticed a little black pony close beside them. Oh ho, they said, that is old Valentine's pony. It must have escaped from its stable and is going down to drink at the horse pond. My pretty little pony, said the eldest, patting the creature with his hand. You mustn't run too far. I'll take you to the pond myself. With these words, he jumped on the pony's back and was quickly followed by his second brother, then by the third, and so on, till at last they were all astride the little beast, down to the small Richard, who didn't like to be left behind. On the way to the pond, they met several of their companions, and they invited them all to mount the pony, which they did, 
and the little creature did not seem to mind the extra weight, but trotted merrily along. The quicker it trotted, the more the young people enjoyed the fun. They dug their heels into the pony's sides and called out, Gallop, little horse! You have never had such brave riders on your back before. In the meantime, the wind had risen again, and the waves began to howl, but the pony did not seem to mind the noise, and instead of going to the pond, cantered gaily towards the seashore. Richard began to regret his time in blackberries, and the eldest brother seized the pony by the mane and tried to make it turn around, for he remembered the blue eyes of Jacob the rope-maker's daughter. But he tugged and pulled in vain, for the pony galloped straight on into the sea till the waves met its forefeet. As soon as it felt the water, it neighed lustily and capered about with glee, advancing quickly into the foaming billows. When the waves had covered the children's legs, they repented their careless behavior and cried out, The cursed little black pony is bewitched! If we had only listened to old Peggy's advice, we shouldn't have been lost. The further the pony advanced, the higher rose the sea. At last, the waves covered the children's heads and they were all drowned. Towards morning, old Peggy went out, for she was anxious about the fate of her grandchildren. She sought them high and low, but could not find them anywhere. She asked all the neighbors if they had seen the children, but no one knew anything about them except that the eldest had not been with the blue-eyed daughter of Jacob the rope maker. As she was going home, bowed with grief, she saw a little black pony coming towards her, springing and curvetting in every direction. When it got quite near her, it neighed loudly and galloped past her so quickly that in a moment it was out of her sight. Hey, it's your girl Bumble here, and I'm going to read you a spooky story. The story is written by yours truly. Here we go. <sighs> Jackie knew how to look. As a kid, she looked at the small details, like the way veins of leaves weaved, crossing each other like a huge maze in an endless pattern. She looked at the shapes a dollar made when it was put in front of a light for inspection, how the drawings in the front and back side overlapped, making it look like some obscure creature. When she got older, Jackie started looking at bigger things. The way stars twisted and twirled in the night sky, delicate motions making them rearrange their shape as they danced. She looked at people, how they trudged through the streets, each of them hesitant, unsure of the next step they are going to take. Jackie looked at the patterns and pulses. She, took, she looked at the long, elaborate rhythm everyone partakes in, though most choose to ignore. Jackie knew how to look, so she must have been aware that there was something very wrong with that bookshop. Maybe it was how the layout of the store never seemed to stay the same. Familiar bookshelves twisted into never-ending darkness, taunting her, daring Jackie to go further and further. Maybe it was how every time the cashier smiled, it never seemed to reach his eyes. They stayed static. He stayed static, and his body felt hollow as he handed Jackie her bag of books. Maybe it was the books themselves, all freshly bound up in crispy leather and inscribed with crudely drawn illustrations. 
Jackie, of course, didn't notice all the strange things that happened in the store. Or maybe she did, but waved them off at her unreliable mind playing tricks on her. It was a cold winter day, and the rain was pouring through the streets and alleys. Little pools of water kept expanding as the rain continued its course. Gray storm clouds unleashed their wrath on the world. On that day, Jackie found herself near the familiar bookstore. Jackie opened the steel door, which led to a barren storefront. She walked past the familiar furniture, which almost twisted into an unfamiliar shape. She should have walked away and disappeared into the early morning sky. But instead, she walked into me. Jackie did not recognize the man staring at her in the checkout desk. The static cashier was gone, replaced by a long man with a long velvet suit. Jackie didn't recognize the man, but said hello regardless. The man smiled, and that smile was too wide for Jackie's taste. Too many teeth. She quickly said that she was in a hurry and was just looking around for a bit. Jackie attempted to leave the store, but she was too late. I told Jackie that I actually have a book just to her liking with soft pink clouds and big meadows people get lost in. A book about the memory of the smell of dusty old garage belonging to a stubborn father that showed his little girl how to make a slingshot about a boy that gave you tulips for your birthday, about a house in the countryside that you had to leave. Jackie knew how to look, so I keep her eyes hanging above the door. Sorry for the couple of interruptions and the, the big achoo at the end sentence. <laughs> uh, just, uh... 10 years ago, I taught sophomore creative writing. Two student stories still haunt me to this day from you slash Redgrin. Fresh out of college, I took a teaching job in a small town in central Wisconsin. In my sophomore creative writing class, I assigned a flash fiction exercise around Halloween. We'd studied urban legends and folklore, and it was the students' turn to construct stories of their own. Assignment length? 100 to 1,000 words. Directions? Scare me. The submission quality was as expected. There were sophomores, after all. But one story stood out halfway through my stack of papers. A piece by a quiet student named Jake. His first-person flash fiction story seemed so real. Like it was dipped in reality, a little too closely. Almost like he wasn't making it up, but had been retelling something that had happened to him. And I put it aside. Impressed. Kate's submission was the paper last in the stack. I remember reading the experience vividly. The beads of sweat accumulating around my temples, the clickety-click of the red pen in my hand, and a weird feeling of dread in the pit of my stomach. I placed it on top of Jake's story and thought, What the hell am I going to do? I still have photocopies of those original stories, and I often wonder... Why do I still have them? But there's something about them. They're so interconnected. There's something so raw and beautiful about them. I have a strong affinity for interesting student writing, and it'd be a shame to let these flames of these stories be extinguished. I'll share the student pieces and the subsequent events that transpired right here. I do enjoy a good story. Jake's Flash Fiction my parents put Grandma Rosie in a home when she started to lose her grasp on reality, they said. I still found it cruel, but she seemed content. I remember visiting, 
She had an old wooden rocking chair that faced the window. Outside was nothing but flat, fields of green. The green would eventually fade, and when it snowed, it was carpets of white for miles and miles. I'm not sure which season Rosie liked the most. She didn't do a lot of talking. She mainly listened to the radio. Always one station, 89.1. But 89.1 never had a signal. It was always static. Grandma listened to the static all day, seemingly waiting out her life. No one could reach her. I visited one day to drop off a box of chocolates. She rocked in her chair with large headphones over her ears, staring out of the window, watching the snow. I couldn't tell if she knew I was there. I walked over and placed the chocolates on a small table, and her hand suddenly reached out across and snatched my wrist. Shh, she whispered. Listen. She leaned in close. I put my ear to hers. I lifted the cup for her headphone and listened. There was only static. I was about to speak, but she covered my mouth with her hand. Listen closer, she said. I did, but all I heard was more static. Soon they will come, she said. They will come to take me away. This freaked me out a little, and I went home. I told my mom and dad what happened, but they didn't think it was that weird. I kept thinking about it. One night, I couldn't sleep, so I buzzed my friend Abby on our walkie-talkies. She lived across the street. She was somehow... all She knew all about 89.1. She told me it was an old legend in our town. You needed two things to explore the legend further. Face away from a closet, tune into 89.1, and listen very closely. At some point through the static, you'll hear the faint sound of an organ, distant screams and the dragging of metal chains across a gravelly surface. The open doorway is an invitation. Keep your eyes closed, and only if you keep your eyes closed, a figure will appear and drag you into the closet. From there, your fate is unknown. How do you know about this? I asked. I've heard it, she said. Don't tell anyone. The less people that know, the better. She put out, she locked out my window and saw Abby in her bedroom. She put her finger up to her lips. This is our secret, the walkie-talkie buzzed. For the next few days, I kept thinking about the ritual, and Grandma, why would you be playing this game? I again told my parents I was worried, and they were still dismissive. I wanted to know more, so I decided to try the game myself. It was late at night, and I opened my closet door just a crack, sat on my bed with my back to the closet, tuned my radio, and put on headphones. I heard the static close my eyes. I sat there for a very long time, focusing very hard on the static. The longer I sat there, the more it felt like my room was shrinking. Kind of like the space was filling up with something else. Like I wasn't alone. In my headphones, I heard the distant organ, and I heard the screams that seemed far away, but sounded like they were getting closer. The screeching of metal began, and then I heard a voice. Open your eyes. I jumped from my bed, very startled. Abby was laughing hysterically through the walkie-talkie. I looked around my bedroom. I was alone. I looked out my window and saw Abby smiling and giggling. She brought the walkie-talkie up to her mouth. I totally scared you, she said. There's no one there. You're such a wuss. I noticed the closet door. It was wide open. The static from 89.1 from my headphones. 
I was only joking, walkie-talkie chirped. But I wasn't so sure. Grandma died two weeks later in her sleep. Her time had come, and I was done fooling around with legends and superstitions. Jake's story was the most interesting of the bunch. His writing needed some tightening, sure, but the ideas were there. A mysterious legend, sentimental characterization, ambiguous ending. I truly thought he'd invented the whole thing. Until I read Kate's submission. Kate's flash fiction. Panic. Fear. No one would believe me. Not ever. I told him I was joking. About everything. It helps me sleep at night. But I know what I saw. A young boy, a ritual, and death. Death itself. A black death with a clutch and grip, an entity that surrounds its victim, dragging a companion to its secret and eternal lair. But I was joking. Joking all along, which made it okay. I had to know. No more. I went to her room. It felt recently vacated, like the plug had just been pulled from a sink. Headphones on the floor. Static. Nothing but static. Noises from the closet. Labored breathing. Fingernails squeaking on the door from the inside. I clutched the handle. Something. Something else. Something dark. Can't open it. Won't open it. Refuse to let it out. I slowly back away, a tiny voice squeaking. Help me. Static echoing in the small room. Nothing but static. I close the door on my way out. Won't let it out. Won't tell. Will never tell. My story doesn't exist. It's simply not there. Here I had two seemingly intertwined stories. Jake's more traditional folklore story and Kate's personalized flash fiction focusing on emotion, regret, and secrets. Perhaps I'd been swimming in urban legends too long myself, or maybe I'd been the victim of too many horrendous student essays and stories to count, but I couldn't shake the notion this seems real. A few days after Halloween, I kept Kate after school. I wanted to know more. Specifically, was she the Abby character in Jake's story? And was she confessing to visiting the grandmother in her own peace? I pulled out Kate's flash fiction and I asked how about how she wrote it. What was her inspiration? She shrugged. I guess it was avant-garde. I was experimenting with ideas. Did you like it? I nodded. It was an interesting piece, I told her. Have you ever heard of 89.1? Kate asked me. I started to speak, but couldn't. A few words sputtered out, but they were interrupted by her laughing. Oh my gosh, Mr. Patrick, the whole thing was just a joke. Kate explained how she and Jake conspired to write the multiple viewpoints of the same story, partially as a creative writing exercise, but mainly just to screw with me. The whole thing was made up. It was a Halloween prank. We so got you, Mr. Patrick, Kate laughed. I smiled uncomfortably. It was a good one. And yes, they got me. I told her that I enjoyed her piece. Let's continue developing her avant-garde writing. And to enjoy her Halloween. Something didn't feel right, though. I had drinks with a veteran, freshman English instructor. Me, the first-year teacher in a new town, and he, the wily old mentor. I told him about the assignment and the stories Jake and Kate turned in. He laughed and thought about it more. That just seems off, he said. 
You said Jake and Kate conspired to play a joke? They were fixed thieves in my class at the start of the school year, but in the fall, they stopped talking. Wouldn't even look at each other anymore. Had some sort of falling out, I guess they made up. For the next few weeks, I watched Jake and Kate closely, in my class and in the hallways. They didn't speak once, never even looked at each other. I scheduled a story conference with Jake, and I let him know how much I'd enjoyed his growth as a writer, especially his Halloween flash fiction piece. I grinned and told him that his prank with Kate totally burned me. Jake smiled awkwardly. We got you, huh? He said. It was Kate's idea. Everything was made up, he claimed. There was no 89.1. He had no grandmother. All the characters and situations were straight 100% fiction. I told him good job and to keep writing. Still, the situation seemed amiss, like I was missing part of the act. Was it possible these two were so committed to screwing with me that they wouldn't even speak at school? Or maybe they were dating and didn't want anyone else to know? So they played it cool in the hallways? They were 15-year-olds, after all. That sounds like something they do. It kept keeping me awake at night. Nothing else mattered. I thought about it during the day. I obsessed over the stories in the evening. News, sports, and current events faded to the background. The real world slipped away, and I pushed forward into 89.1. Armed with a couple possible last names, thank you, school records, I called senior citizens' homes in the area. I was trying to track down my mom's old friend Rosie, I told them. Each phone call forwarded the same script. The receptionist read through the files and found nothing. No one there by either last name. I scoured the internet and I spent way too much time in the stacks of the local library. I found no folklore or urban legends relating to 89.1, and each time I felt like quitting, I pulled out my photocopy of Kate's story. She had visited Jake's grandmother. It simply felt so real. I knew it couldn't be fake. In a last-ditch effort, I spent a lot of time alone in my bedroom, listening to the static of 89.1, with my eyes closed and the door slightly ajar. I honed it on the static. I listened deeply and intently for the chimes of the organ, the harsh and troubled screams, the clink of metal. Sometimes I'd think it was there. I just had to focus a little harder and I'd sense a presence in my bedroom about to creep out of my closet, the dark mist waiting to drag me away. I wanted it to come, because I wanted it to be real but it didn't come. One day, at school, I saw Jake and Kate smiling and laughing at Jake's locker. I walked past them, and Kate winked at me. That was the clincher. I finally succumbed to the notion that I'd been had. It was over. I ended my search for 89.1, I had drinks again with my colleagues, many drinks this time, and I drunkenly told him everything I'd been doing. He found my investigation ridiculous and ultimately dangerous. You like stories too much, he said. If I didn't know any better, it almost seems like you're trying to write one of your own. Just let it go. I pulled out the photocopied stories from my back pocket and I pressed them down on the bar, staining them with splashes of beer. My colleague picked up Jake's story and he took a look at it for the first time. His eyes skimmed the page and they stopped cold. Wait, he said. You never told me about Abby. I shrugged. Abby was Kate, I told him. It was all part of the game. I wonder, he thought aloud to himself. <laughs> After some prodding, he laid it out for me. A year ago, about 
Ten months before I moved in, an eighth grader named Abby had gone missing, seemingly vanished into thin air. One minute, she was alone in her room, and the next minute, she was gone. Some suspected that she even ran away, but there was no clues. No evidence of foul play, no suspicious or shady family members or neighbors. She was simply gone. I read Kate's piece again, and my heart sank. The whole time, I assumed it was about her visiting the grandmother, but maybe I was wrong. Maybe the squeaks and pleas coming from the closet were coming from Abby. Kate never specified who she was visiting, or where she was. I read the avant-garde flash fiction one more time, honing in on every word just to be sure, and at that moment, everything changed. I spoke with the administration, they contacted the authorities, and the police had conversations with Jake and Kate. It went nowhere. It didn't matter that Abby had lived across the street from Jake. It didn't matter that we had words on paper. They were just stories, the kids said. Only stories. Complete fiction. Jake had no grandparents in a home, anyway. They were sorry if they'd scared anyone. They were Halloween stories, after all, and pretty ambiguous stories at that. Jake even tearfully apologized for naming a fictional character after a missing girl. It hadn't crossed his mind. And now I was the monster for dragging two innocent children into this mess. The staff ostracized me. The town was ready to murder me. I was done. I left the teaching profession soon after that, walked out of the school holding my small crate of school supplies, and Kate smirked at me with a knowing glance through a first floor window. I haven't seen her since. I didn't take much with me, but I did take the photocopies of those stories. I pull them out occasionally, relive the past, sometimes, late at night. I've got a fire in my belly and a burning desire to travel back to that small Wisconsin town. Maybe Grandma Rosie was a great aunt, or that Jake's family referred to as a grandma, or maybe it was an elderly family friend. Maybe I missed something about the missing girl, about 89.1, about Kate's intentions. Perhaps I could try the ritual a few more times just to see what happens. Or maybe it's all just bullshit. It was ten years ago. Probably the only one that thinks that there's a shred of truth in those stories. I'd just be wasting my time. But it still keeps me up at night. The slim chance that it's all true, and oftentimes the idea of it is something I contemplate more than what really happened to Abby and the grandmother. If it's true, why did the kids write it all down like that? I don't have a good answer. I'll never have a good answer. <sighs> I suppose, just like me, they probably just enjoy a really good story. The Legend of the Mothman On November 15th of 1966, just outside the town of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, two young couples encountered something late at night. Something almost human, but not quite. Roger Scarberry, his wife Linda, and their friends Mary and Steve Millette were out for a late night drive through an area known as the TNT area when Linda caught the first glance of the creature that would haunt their nightmares for the rest of their lives. It was an imposing figure coming in at about seven feet tall with large bat-like wings, and it was staring at them with large, glowing, red eyes. Roger turned and sped away, but the creature followed, flying just behind the car all the way back to town, a full seven miles away. 
The creature screeched a high, haunting noise that sent chills down their spines as it matched their car's speed at up to 60 miles per hour. Once safely back in town, the creature ceased its chase, and the four young people had time to think about what they had just seen. They were convinced it had just been their mind playing tricks on them, that nothing so terrifying could possibly live out in the woods of West Virginia. So they went back out, hours later, in an attempt to confirm or deny what they had seen. Roger's car rumbled down Highway 62 for the second time that night, but they didn't get very far before they saw the creature again. The headlights of the car illuminated the hulking figure just for a second, and it turned that skin-crawling red glare back on them once more before taking off in flight on its massive wings, disappearing over the tree line. Those four would never see the Mothman again, but that was not the last the world would see of the now-famous cryptid. The old woman who used to live in our house kept her teeth in the basement. At least, that's where Dave and I found them when we moved in. Not real teeth, of course. Dentures. Old, faded gray with sugar pink gums. We found them in stained Tupperware containers on a shelf towards the back. There were several sets in the box, some newer than others, and some were barely nubs. It didn't look like the old lady ever threw them out. All of them smelled. I wanted to toss the whole mess out. Dave talked me into leaving them. What are they hurting? He asked. They're disgusting. Think of it like a little shrine to old Miss used to live here. She lived alone and died alone. At least your teeth are still with this world, Dave said, shaking the box. I felt a sudden chill in the basement. Maybe you shouldn't do that, I suggested. Maybe we should leave the teeth. Maybe you're right. Are you scared, Joe? He asked me. Are you worried Miss Hughes won't like us playing with her old, rotting, mold-carrying? Stop, I said. Just stop. Dave grinned, but put the container back on the shelf. We went on to finish unpacking, and I didn't play with the teeth anymore. Until a week later, when Dave hid a set of dentures in my jacket pocket. I screamed when my hand closed in on the gritty rubber and the hard plastic. It was all slick. Oily, almost. We had a fight, and Dave apologized, but over the next few months, he kept playing little pranks. Dentures in the freezer, dentures under my pillow. I considered, very seriously, leaving him after that one. Worst of all was that every time David... Every time David moved any of the teeth, I was certain I could feel a presence in the house until I put the dentures back in the basement. One night, I swore I heard dragging outside of our bedroom. David carved smiles into all of the fruit in the fridge and stuck the teeth in. I returned everything back to the basement and the noises stopped. If you ever do that again, I told Dave, I will leave. It's not funny. You can live here alone and die here alone for all I care. Never regretted words more than that. The last time I saw Dave was a week later. I came home late from work to an empty house. The basement door was open, but the room was pitch black. I called out. No answer. I tried the switch. Dead. I walked down, holding out my phone's light, sweeping the basement. There was a crunch as I came down the stairs. 
and then another. And I finally stopped and moved my light down. And there was a trail of teeth glittering down the steps to the center of the room. And at the end of the trail was Dave, hunched over. <clears throat> his face, his cheeks all torn to red, jagged rags. Faded dentures peeked out from what was left of his lips as he hoarsely whispered. You were right, he told me. She didn't like us playing with her teeth. My Last Landlady by Neil Gaiman My Last Landlady? She was nothing like you. Nothing at all alike. Her rooms were damp. Her breakfasts were unpleasant. Oily eggs, leathery sausages, a baked orange sludge of beans. Her face could have curdled beans. She was not kind. You strike me as a kind person. I hope your world is kind. By which I mean, I've heard you see the world not as it is, but as we are. A saint sees a wall of saints, a killer sees only murderers and victims. I see the dead. My landlady told me she would not willingly walk upon the beach, for it was littered with weapons, huge hand-fitting rocks, each ripe for striking. She only had a little money in her tiny purse, she said. They would take the notes, oily from her fingers, and leave the purse tucked underneath the stone. And the water, she would say, hold anyone under, chill salt water, grey and brown, heavy as sin, all ready to drag you away. Children went like that so easily in the sea when they were surplus to requirements, or had learned awkward facts they might be inclined to pass on to those who will listen. There were people on the west pier the night had burned, she said. The curtains were dusty lace and blocked each town grand window. See view. That was a laugh. The morning she saw me twitch her curtains to see if it were properly raining, she wrapped my knuckles. Mr. Moroni, she said, in this house, we do not look at the sea through the windows. It brings bad luck, she said. People come to the beach to forget their problems. It's what we do. It's what the English do. You chop your girlfriend up because she's pregnant, and you worry what the wife would say if she found out. Or you poison the banker you're sleeping with for the insurance. Marry a dozen men in a dozen little seaside towns. Margate, Torquay, Lord love them, but why must you stand so still? When I asked her who, who stood so still? She told me to none of my beeswax and to be sure to be out of the house between midday and four as the child was coming and I would be underfoot and in the way. I'd been in that B&B for three weeks now looking for permanent digs. I paid in cash. The other guests were loveless folk on holiday and did not care if this was hove or hell. We'd eat our slippery eggs together. I wasn't promenade if the day was fine or huddled under awnings if it rained. My landlady cared only they were out of the house until tea time. A retired dentist from Ed Baston, down for a week of loneliness and drizzle by the sea, would nod at me over breakfast or if you passed on the seafront. The bathroom was down the hall. I was up at night. I saw him in his dressing gown. I saw him knock upon her door. I saw it open. He went in. There was nothing more to say. My landlady was there at breakfast, bright and cheery. 
She said the dentist had left early, owing to her death in the family. She told the truth. That night, the rain rattled the windows. A week passed and it was time. I told my landlady I had found a place and be moving on and paid the rent. That night, she gave me a glass of whiskey and then another, and said, had always been her favorite and that she was a woman of needs, a flower ripe for plucking. She smiled and it was a whiskey that made me nod and think she was perhaps a bit less out of face and form. And so I knocked upon her door that night. She opened it. I remember the whiteness of her skin, the whiteness of her gown. I can't forget. Mr. Maroney, she whispered. I reached for her and that was forever that. The channel was cold and salt wet and she filled my pockets with rocks to keep me under. So when they find me, if they find me, I could be anyone, crab-eaten flesh and sea-washed bones and all. I think I shall like it here in my new digs, here on the seashore, and you have made me welcome. You have all made me feel so welcome. How many of us are here? I see us, but I cannot count. We cluster on the beach and stare at the light in the uppermost room of our house. We see the curtains twitch. We see a white face glaring through the grime. She looks afraid. As if one loveless day, we might start up the pebbles towards her, to rebuke her for her lack of hospitality, to tear her for her bad breakfast and the sour holidays and our fates. We stand so still. Why must we stand so still? The Gash the Grum Tinies by Edward Gorey. A is for Amy, who fell down the stairs. B is for Basil, assaulted by bears. C is for Clara, who wasted away. D is for Desmond, thrown out of a sleigh. E is for Ernest, who choked on a peach. F is for Fanny, sucked dry by a leech. G is for George, smothered under a rug. H is for Hector, done in by a thug. I is for Ida, who drowned in a lake. J is for James, who took lie by mistake. K is for Kate, who was struck with an axe. L is for Leo, who swallowed some tacks. M is for Maud, who was swept up to sea. N is for Neville, who died of ennui. O is for Olive, run through with an awl. P is for Prue, trampled flat in a brawl. Q is for Quentin, who sank in a mire. R is for Rhoda, consumed by a fire. S is for Susan, who perished of fits. T is for Titus, who flew into bits. U is for Una, who slipped down a drain. V is for Victor, squash under a train. W is for Winnie, embedded in ice. X is for Xerxes, devoured by mice. Y is for Yorick, whose head was knocked in. And Z is for Zilla, who drank too much gin. The Troll by Max Lobdell We dredged something up from the deep, underwater. It turned out to still be alive. Partly alive. Something like alive. I wanted to explain how it looked, but every time I thought about how to describe it, I got the worst mental block. Everything went foggy and my head started to hurt. Even when I remembered how it spilled out onto our deck with thousands of dead fish, I was overcome with a sensation of nausea. 
that left me gasping for air. That's why, once it stopped thrashing, yes, that's how it moved, by thrashing. I remembered how it knocked over a bunch of equipment. I asked one of the guys to start taking pictures. Not a single one came out right. They're all blurred beyond repair and dotted with multicolored splotches. So all I have is my memory. While I couldn't picture how it looked, I knew it was nothing like I'd ever seen before. Nothing like any of us had ever seen. All this happened last week. The creature's gone, from the best we can remember. It hurled itself back over the side of the boat. None of us are certain of that, mind you. It's just the best explanation we can come up with, altogether. All five of us started getting sick after that day. I told everyone it's just the flu, that we're in close proximity all day, every day, and in the cold and rain and wind. If anyone's gonna get sick, it'd be all of us. But deep down, I didn't think that was the case. My teeth started to loosen. There was blood in the sink when I brushed them. We went about our business and holed up our catches, brought them to shore, and went back out. Gray waves met the gray sky on the horizon, and my ears had grown numb from the endless white noise of the sea. Two days ago, Vernon jumped overboard. The four of us were working the stern, and Vern was at the bow. We never saw him go in. He never came back up. Under any circumstances, we would have radioed the Coast Guard. We would have been devastated by the loss of our colleague and friend. But a mood unlike any I've ever experienced had come over us. We had to go ahead, forward, into the cold Atlantic. At night, my dreams were vivid yet abstract. Colors with shapes and curves, but no edges, no lines. All the while, a voice was singing to me, cooing, crooning. Yesterday, Emil and Billy held hands and jumped off the port side of the boat. Gervasso and I watched them go, but we didn't say a word to one another. We just went back to our respective areas of the vessel, traveled a good couple hundred miles further out to sea. Last night, as I slept, I poked my tongue around the new holes in my gums where my teeth had fallen out. I pressed against the loosed ones, and a few fell back against my throat. I remember the feeling. My dreams were full of song and color, opening my eyes to the gray morning made me want to go back to sleep. Carvasso embraced me after breakfast and stood at the bow of the ship. He made three deep slits on each side of his neck, then toppled into the water. The last thing he said was, I'm going to hear them sing. Today, by mid-morning, all my teeth have fallen out. I look that my new smile in the mirror, it was inhuman, benthic, like the mouth of a strange pink fish. With a boat on autopilot, I stumbled to my bed and began a nap. It was short, but full of the song and color I'd hoped for. There, swimming inside the fountain of shimmering iridescence, was the creature. I still can't describe it, but my feeling of discomfort while trying to recall it is gone, all gone. In fact, the thought of it carries a beacon of welcome and hope. Ever since opening my eyes after the nap, I can still hear the singing. It's coming from far below the boat, miles and miles beneath the ice. As I looked out, I see the grey all around me, 
I feel starved for color. As I reach out, I feel the icy wind buffeting me. I feel deprived of warmth. I know what I have to do. I know where I have to go. At the bottom of all this water, I can find what is serenading me. All I have to do is jump. The very first house I remember living in was haunted. She was a pretty classic ghost. Turned lights on and off in the bedrooms, closets, hallways, knocked items off of tables and shelves. My parents called the electrician, but they found nothing wrong. Knowing she'd been caught, she moved on to the backyard lights. Again, we called the electrician, but again, they found not a single electrical issue. Everything was normal. But then one night, when my mom was doing laundry, I was about one or two at the time, I slipped and fell and cut my lip on the shower railing. And though the cut wasn't very deep, it had started bleeding profusely. My dad was at work, so my mom was home alone, and when she found me, she was terrified. I was crying, so she picked me up in her arms, and was about to drive me to the hospital, but then suddenly, all of the lights in the house turned on at once, and my mom felt warm and comforted, almost as if receiving a hug. The ghost was telling her that everything was going to be okay, and just like that, I stopped bleeding. I stopped crying. I was perfectly fine. A few times after that, my mom swears she caught glimpses of the ghost, standing peacefully in a corner or moving from room to room. She appeared to be a short Hispanic woman in her older years, with round features and long black hair tied back in a braid. Unfortunately, she never told us her name, so we just started calling her the Grandmother Ghost. A few years later, we moved out of that house and across the street to a larger house. A young man bought the old house from us for a decent price, and it was funny, but a part of my mother missed the Grandmother Ghost. Then, a few weeks later, the young man showed up at our doorstep looking distraught, and he asked us if the house was haunted. At first, my mom denied it because that's a taboo subject, especially since he had just bought our house from us, and then we didn't want to lose the money. But then he told us that his parents had been separated, and his mother had owned that house before we had, fallen ill, and died in the upstairs bedroom. Shaken, my mother decided to tell him the truth, and went on to describe the ghost to him and what had happened to me. He began to cry, but wiped his eyes with a smile and said, that's her. Huh. <laughs> Even as a spirit, she's still just as kind. A few more people have lived in that house since then, and each has reported a ghost. Recently, I walked my dogs down that street, and when I passed the house, I saw the lights in the upstairs bedroom flicker on and off, as if she knew I would see it. She seemed to be saying to me, Hello, I'm still here. I remember you. Look how much you've grown up. The Tell-Tale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe True. Nervous. Very, very dreadfully nervous. I had been and am. But why will you say that I am mad? The disease had sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was a sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in the heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How, then? Am I mad? Hearken, and observe how healthily, 
how calmly I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain, but once conceived, it haunted me day and night. Object? There was none. Passion? There was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. He had the eye of a vulture. A pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold. And so by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now, now, now this is the point. You fancy me mad. Madmen know nothing. But you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded, with what caution, with what foresight, with what dissimulation I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him. And every night, about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it. Oh, so gently. And then, when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I put in a dark lantern, all closed, closed, so that no light shone out. And then I thrust in my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved slowly, very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. <laughs> would a madman have been so wise as this? And then, when my head was well in the room, I undid the lantern cautiously. Oh, so cautiously. Cautiously, for the hinges creaked. I undid it just so much that a thin ray fell upon the vulture eye. And this I did for seven long nights. Every night, just at midnight. But I found the eye always closed. And so it was impossible to do the work, for it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone, and inquiring how he has passed the night. So you see, he would have been a very profound old man indeed, to suspect that every night, just at twelve, I looked in upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watch's minute moves more quickly than did mine. Never before that night had I felt the extent of mine own powers, my sagacity. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph. To think that there I was, opening the door, little by little, and he not even to dream of my secret deed or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea. And perhaps he heard me, for he moved on the bed suddenly, as if startled. Now you think that I, you may think that I drew back, but no, his room was black as pitch with a thick darkness, for the shutters were close fastened through fear of robbers. And so, and so I knew that he could not see the opening of the door, and I kept pushing it on steadily, steadily. I had my head in and was about to open the lantern when my thumb slipped on the tin fastening, and the old man sprang up a bed, crying out, Who's there? I kept quite still and said nothing. For a whole hour I did not move a muscle, and in the meantime I did not hear him lie down. 
he was still sitting up in the bed listening, just as I have done night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Presently, I heard a slight groan, and I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or of grief, oh no! It was the low, stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it has welled up from my own bosom, deepening with its dreadful echo the terrors that distracted me. I say, I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt and pitied him, though although I chuckled at heart. I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise when he had turned in the bed. His fears had been ever since growing upon them. He had been trying to fancy them causeless, but could not. He had been saying to himself, It is nothing but the wind of the chimney. It is only a mouse crossing the floor. Or, or it is merely a cricket which has made a single chirp. Yes, he had been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions, but he had found all in vain. All in vain, because death, in approaching him, had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. And it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel, although he neither saw nor heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited a long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at length a sim, simple dim ray, like the thread of a spider, shot out from, from the crevice and fell full upon the vulture eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw with the perfect distinctness all a dull blue with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones. But I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the ray as if by instinct precisely upon the damned spot. And have I not told you that what you mistake for madness is but over-acuteness of the sense? Now, I say, there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well, too. It was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased my fury as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier into courage. But even yet, I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eve. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder, I say, louder every moment. Do you mark me well? I have told you that I am nervous. So I am. And now, at the dead hour of the night, amid the dreadful silence of that old house, so strange and noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet for some minutes longer I refrained and stood still. But the breathing grew louder, louder, I thought the heart must burst. And now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. 
The old man's hour had come! With a loud yell, I threw open the lantern and leaped into the room. He shrieked once. Once only. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. I then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. But for many minutes, the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length, it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. If you still think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned and I worked hastily, but in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head and the arms and the legs. I then took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and deposited all between the scantlings. I then replaced the board so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot whatsoever. I had been too wary for that. A tub had caught all. <laughs> when I made an end of these labors, it was four o'clock, still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the street door. I went down to open it with a light heart, for what had I now to fear? There entered three men, who introduced themselves, with perfect suavity, as officers of the police. A shriek had been heard by a neighbor during the night. Suspicion of foul play had been aroused, information had been lodged at the police office, and they, the officers, had been de deputed to search the premises. I smiled. For what had I to fear? I paid the gentleman welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own, in a dream. The old man, I mentioned, was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search. Search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure, undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from their fatigues, where, while I myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted of familiar things. But ere long, I, I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone. My head ached and I fancied a ringing in my ears, but still they sat and chatted. The ringing became more distinct. It continued and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definiteness until at length I found that the noise was not within my ears. No doubt I now grew very pale, but I talked more fluently and with a heightened voice. Yet the sound increased, and what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound, much such a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. 
I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I rose and argued about trifles in a high key with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides, as if excited to fury by the observations of the men. But the noise steadily increased. Oh God, what could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore, I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and it grated upon the boards. But the noise arose over all and continually increased. It grew louder, louder, louder. And still the men chattled pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Almighty God, no, no, they heard, they suspected, they knew, they were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought, and this I think. But anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer. I thought that I must scream and die, and now again, hark, louder, louder, louder. Villains, I shrieked, dissemble no more. I admit the deed. Cheer up the planks. Here, here, it is the beating of his hideous heart. Well then, that was thrilling, wasn't it? <sighs> Rather wide berth of stories this Halloween. I truly hope you enjoyed the collection. I do think they were a rather interesting bunch. Although, I feel now that our time is coming to an end. But before I go and give your old narrator his form back, <laughs> I suppose I have enough time to give you a story myself. Tell you one I've always wanted to tell. One that I started so many years ago, and never quite finished. There was a man dwelt by a churchyard, by M.R. James. There was a man dwelt by a churchyard. His house had a lower story of stone, and an upper one of timber. The front windows looked out on the street and the back ones on the churchyard. It had once belonged to the parish priest, but since this was in Queen Elizabeth's days, the priest was a married man and wanted more room. Besides, his wife disliked seeing the churchyard at night out of her bedroom window. She said she saw... But never mind what she saw. <laughs> Anyhow, she gave her husband no peace till he agreed to move into a larger house into the village street and the old one was taken by John Poole, a widower, and, lived, and he lived there alone. He was an elderly man, kept very much to himself. People said he was something of a miser. It was very likely true. He was morbid in other ways, certainly. In those days, it was common to bury people at night by torchlight, and it was noticed that whenever a funeral was toward John Poole, he was always at his window, either on the ground floor or upstairs depending on where he could get the better view. There came a night when an old woman was to be buried. She was fairly well-to-do, but she was not liked in the place. The usual thing was said of her, 
that she was no Christian, and that on such nights as Midsummer Eve and All Hallows, she was not to be found in her house. She was red-eyed and dreadful to look at. No beggar ever knocked at her door. Yet, when she died, she left a purse of money to the church. There was no storm on the night of her burial. It was fair and calm. But there was some difficulty about getting bearers and men to carry the torches. In spite of the fact that she had left larger fees than the common for such work, she was buried in woolen, without a coffin. No one was there but those who were actually needed. And John Poole. Watching from his window, just before the grave was filled in, the parson stooped down and cast something upon the body, something that clinked, and in a low voice he said words that sounded like, Thy money perish with thee. Then he walked quickly away, and so did the other men, leaving only one torchbearer to light the sexton, and his boy while they shoveled the earth in. They made no very neat job of it, and the next day, which was a Sunday, the churchgoers were rather sharp with the sexton, saying it was the untidiest grave in the yard, and indeed, when he came to look at it himself, he thought it was worse than he had left it. Meanwhile, John Poole went about with a curious air, half exulting, as it were, and half nervous. More than once, he spent an evening at the inn, which was clean contrary to his usual habits, of course, and to those who fell into talk with him. He hinted that he had come into a little bit of money and was looking out for a somewhat better house. Well, I don't wonder, said the smith one night. I shouldn't care for that place of yours. I should be fancying things all night, the landlord asked him what sort of things. Well, maybe somebody climbing up the, to the chamber window or the like of that, said the smith. I don't know. Old Mother Wilkins that was buried a week or two ago today, eh? Come, I think you might consider of a person's feelings, said the landlord. It ain't so pleasant for Mr. Poole, is it now? Mr. Poole didn't mind, said the smith. He's been there long enough to know. I only says it wouldn't be my choice. What with the passing bell and the torches and there's when there's a burial. And all them graves lying so quiet when there's no one about. Only they say there's lights. You don't ever see no lights, Mr. Poole. No, I never see no lights, said Mr. Poole sulkily, and called for another drink, and went home late. That night, as he lay in his bed, a moaning wind began to play about the house, and he could not go to sleep. He got up and crossed the room to a little cupboard in the wall. He took out of it something that clinked, and put it in the breast of his bedgown. Then he went to the window and looked out into the churchyard. Have you ever seen an old brass in a church with a figure of a person in a shroud? It is bunched together at the top of the head in a curious way. Something like that, sticking up out of the earth in a spot of the churchyard which John Poole knew very well. He darted into his bed and lay there very still indeed. Presently, Something made a very faint rattling at the casement. With a dreadful reluctance, John Poole turned his eyes. Alas, between him and the moonlight was the black outline of the curious bunched head. Then there was a figure in the room. Dry earth, 
rattled on the floor. A low, cracked voice said, Where is it? And steps went hither and thither, under chairs. Finally, it could be heard fumbling at the door of the cupboard in the wall, throwing them open. There was a scratching of long nails on the empty shelves. The figure whipped round for an instant at the side of the bed, raised its arms, and with a hoarse scream, You got it! <laughs> oh, that's a favorite of mine. Shame my dear mother never got to hear it. Right, I suppose I should be giving... What was his name? Uh, uh, Beetle? I quite didn't remember. Uh, his old form back, but if you ever wanted to hear another story... Well, I think you know where to find me now. <laughs> Have a happy All Hallows Eve, friends. Ugh. Ugh. Are we done? I didn't even realize we started. Hmm. There's an extra story here. I didn't remember recording. That's fine. Uh, what's one other story, right? I hope you guys enjoyed the collection. Um, I know a lot of our friends worked really hard, really fast to make it as awesome as it is. Uh, I have so many thank yous uh, that I'll probably be making a whole on credits document that will be in the description of the video and in the audio form as well. It'll all be there. You'll see all the people who contributed. But some special shout outs go to the amazing people behind the TTRPG uh, relief um Twitter group chat. Uh, of course, uh, Connor from Roundtable Audio, who provided some of the music tonight. Just a whole swath of people made this happen on such short notice, and I have nothing but thanks for them all. Uh, let us know if you want us to do this again, because frankly, I had a lot of fun, and I hope you enjoyed listening. Have a happy Halloween, everybody, and... Oh, there's a crown over here? I never really... I don't think I ever got one of those. I'm sure it's fine. I'm sure it's fine.